Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The Helsinki Accords were signed by nearly all the countries of Europe plus the United States and Canada on August 1st, 1975. They were primarily an effort to reduce tensions between the Soviet and Western blocs by securing the common acceptance of the post-World War II status quo in Europe. How successful they were in producing what was termed detente is a matter of debate, but Peter L. W. Osnos has written a book with the provocative title, Would You Believe the Helsinki Accords Changed the World? It's published by Platform Books and brings Peter Osnos to our show now. Welcome. Hi. Uh, I just want to be sure you can hear me well. I can hear you, but uh, not as well as I would like to. Oh, well, I'm hearing you fine. Fine. Good. Holly Kartner, a human rights lawyer, is given partial writing credit. How much of a role did she play in the writing of this book? Her name is on the cover, but in smaller type. Uh, well, that's not really the issue. Uh, Holly uh, and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time. She was the uh, director of what was the Helsinki Watch, which became Europe and Central Asia. Mm -hmm. My feeling was that my expertise, which was considerable, was from another perspective. So I thought that Holly could provide somebody who'd worked in human rights watch. But most importantly, the chapter she wrote on what it takes to become a human rights profession, because there was no such thing when Human Rights Watch began. Uh, being a human rights professional, somebody who was an investigator, a researcher, and whose work was so strong that it could be the basis for advocacy on behalf of human rights. That's what Human Rights Watch invented, and Holly was one of the first people to do that. chapter in the book which deals with Holly's experience becoming a human rights professional as a lawyer, I think is a unique contribution to yeah. that. We'll get to that. Her, the, uh, the chapter she wrote about her experiences with the Helsinki Watch in the early 1990s. Now, let's talk about the Helsinki Agreement. It was signed at what was formerly known as the Conference of Security and Cooperation in Europe. What led to the convening of the, of the conference? The story of the, uh, what became the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe is really the story of old war period, the post-World War II period, literally until today, because you know that a, a Wall Street Journal reporter was arrested this morning and charged with espionage, which is, in a sense, the very end of a process of cooperation with journalists that began in particular during Helsinki. Let me go back to the beginning. After World War II, there was no peace treaty. Europe was divided, and the Soviets wanted what essentially would be a formal um, division of Europe between East and West. And they kept advocating for a conference that would do that. And in the 1970s, we were in the period known as detente. Detente was the period in which Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger were working with the Soviets to kind of enable security provisions such as the uh, nuclear arms treaties and so forth to go on. In addition to which, the Russians had been calling for something called peaceful coexistence. Well, that was not going to be the name of a conference, but cooperation could be, which would be all the issues about East-West cooperation, including unification of families, accessibility of magazines and newspapers, the conditions of journalists, and 
significantly human rights. And, uh, and who called for it? Who actually called for it? The Soviets were the ones who called for a conference, and eventually the rest of the Europeans, hmm. the Europeans, the United States and Canada, agreed to have a conference in which security issues would be discussed and cooperation issues. And, and the signatories were uh, all the nations of Europe except Albania and Andoria. And Albania at that time was aligned with the Chinese. It was kind of an outlier. But everybody else was there, uh, all of Europe and the United States and Canada. And the negotiations began in 1972 and culminated in 1975. And who represented the United States? Well, the United States had a full delegation. And by coincidence, I was, as the Moscow correspondent of the Washington Post at the time, I was writing about the Helsinki Accords from time to time. But by coincidence completely, the chief American delegate happened to be my father-in-law. Uh, father of my wife, Susan Scherer, uh, and her father, Albert W. Scherer, was the ambassador to Czechoslovakia. And because of the way the United States approached this Helsinki conference, he was a part-time chief of the delegation, meaning that while well, an ambassador to level, uh, he also was ambassador to Czechoslovakia. And I've always said that you could tell the difference between being ambassador to Czechoslovakia, he had a palace in Prague, being the American negotiator for the Helsinki Accords, he had a small apartment with his wife and a Murphy bed. Meaning, that generally speaking, the Helsinki Accords and you know, the Helsinki Conference, from the point of view of Washington, with marching, was not something in which they were intending to take the lead role. What they wanted was to support the Europeans on the cooperation issues and give the Russians this uh, division of Europe, the, the, the borders that they were trying to get, which really wouldn't have changed anything anyway because they were already fixed. So it was a conference that, by and large, for the general public, was almost invisible. But you had diplomats from 35 countries working assiduously for three years develop an agreement on cooperation and security in Europe. And when it was finished, which was in August of 75, there was a summit. All the leaders of the world were there, Europe, including Gerald Ford for the United States and uh, Leonid Brezhnev for the Soviets. The agreement was signed, and in this country, um, it, was, it passed essentially, on, I would say, largely unnoticed, except for the fact that the Wall Street Journal said Gerald Ford shouldn't go, and William Sapphire said the, in the Times said the agreement should be rescinded, meaning it was not considered either important or positive in particular for the United States. But the whole point of the book is it turned out to be both of those things, enormously important and very positive. Wasn't Henry Kissinger dismissive? Did he play He's, much it was of a initially role in the process? Yes, he was, because he couldn't imagine what a lot of diplomats could decide. But in fact, as I explain in the book, there was language embedded in the Accords uh, which permitted, enabled the reunification of Germany. The single biggest post-World War II issue in Europe was reunification of Germany. And the terms for reunification actually were included in the security provisions of the agreement. And the person who made that possible, whether he really anticipated doing it or not, was Henry Kissinger. Because Henry Kissinger could sit down with Gromyko, Andrei Dmitrievich, whatever his name was. Do you want something? I'll give you something, but you give me something. And what he asked for 
was language which would enable a country that chose to combine or reunite um, to do so. And the Russians agreed. Remember, the Soviets were all along here had a very sort of straightforward ambition. They wanted those divisions of Europe. The West wanted more. And in the end, what made the agreement so significant is that the West got more. It got cooperation issues. It got the language which enabled the reunification of Germany. It turned out to be an agreement which governed pretty much Europe for the next 50 years. And but it was never ratified, was, was it? It was never ratified in a form. It's not, it's not, it wasn't a treaty. Hmm. It was an agreement, which is one of the reasons why people could say it wasn't significant. It was not a, it was not a treaty ratified by countries, but it was an agreement signed at summit level by 35 leaders with a provision for follow-up in two years for accountability. So in 1975 was the original agreement, and in 1977 there was a follow-up conference in Belgrade in which all the countries were essentially required to account for how they had, um, how they had abided by the accords. So what I'm saying is that there are treaties. Treaties are important. There is diplomacy, which is sometimes not considered all that important. But in this instance, it created a, a a set of circumstances which kept the borders of Europe essentially sound for much of the last 50 years and enabled what became the global human rights movement Art with the young, the small group in Moscow called the Helsinki group that was Andrei Sakharov, Yuri Orlov, Elena Bonner, Natan Sharansky, and subsequently in New York, a Helsinki watch which was the counterpart and eventually became human rights. So you had security in Europe and a global human rights movement. But and neither the, of those two things were necessarily predicted when the 35 nations signed the accord in Helsinki. But the, the borders changed in subsequent years. Um, well, uh, Yugoslavia really. broke up into five countries. Yeah, but Yugoslavia broke up internally. It never went beyond the borders of the Balkans. Of course, it was a, it Soviet was a Union divided, broke up. But it was not borders that changed. It was a country that fell apart. In fact, the only kind of, of uh, border changes of any consequence were the reunification of Germany, East and West. And when Putin started nibbling at his borders, hmm. first with Georgia and to some extent with, uh, with Crimea. other adjoining countries. But the really big one was in 2014 when he went into Donbass. Hmm. And he then was the person who was making clear that in his mind, the security provisions, the border provisions of Helsinki no longer stood. And where we were on February 24th, 2022, was the moment at which every provision of the security requirements in the accords were demolished. Putin crossing the border of Ukraine and basically taking Europe back to where it was in the 20th century and even the 19th century, in which one country can choose to invade another. That had not happened between 1975 and 2024, 2022 except for the Donbass, and the world probably should have reacted more strongly to the Donbass, but it didn't. 
My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Peter L. W. Osnos. Um, his latest book, Would You Believe the Helsinki Accords Changed the World? Advancing Global Human Rights and for Decades Security in Europe. It is published by Platform Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. The um, Accords included 10 principles known as the Decalogue. Now, what were they and how many of them remain in effect? Well, all of them were remain in effect. I'm not going to cite them for you because that would take the rest of your show. But what they did was lay out in what essentially are formal terms, security and cooperation provisions that were included in a rather lengthy legal document, official document. And as I said, between 1975 and 2022, the central security provisions of the Accords were maintained. Yes, Putin went into the Donbass in 2014. He did harass the Georgians. But basically, the borders in Europe stayed the same, and Germany was reunified. On the cooperation side, once you had a, uh, a, a way in which you could measure treatment of people by their government, human rights, and also you know, information exchanges, scientific exchanges. There was also an economic prov provisions in the accords. So there were things there that provided in the most, I would say the broadest sense, a way for the continent to hold together. And it is true that subsequent to the accords, you had the European Union, you had, uh, which was an outgrowth of something called the common market and eventually was a major factor in the European continent. You had the East Bloc until 1991, in which it was imploded. Uh, and then you had all the countries of the former Soviet empire and the former satellites, all of whom were now independent countries, finding their own way. Well, so history did not stop in 1975. But the terms of history were much clearer in the provisions of the accord than they were before. The final act of the conference contained detail, called the final act, contained detailed provisions regarding the respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms and about cooperation in economic, scientific, humanitarian, and other areas. They were called baskets. Why? Well, that was just a term that, uh, that was used to, to differentiate. And the reason is that you had to have, with a, a, a diplomatic uh, convocation of that size, you had to have a way of dividing up the responsibility. And so the diplomats were all divided up into people who worked on basket one, which was security, basket two, which was economic, and basket three, which was cooperation with human rights. And there was a very substantial diplomatic commitment from Europeans. As I said, the Europeans, and particularly the Russians, the Soviets at the time, sent their very top diplomats because they thought it was all very important. The United States sent a top diplomat, but they basically designed it not to be led by the U.S. It was not a U.S.-led agreement. It was a European-led 
agreement. So our role was more guidance and support than it would have been here. Um, and in fact, that balance seemed to have worked well enough to get through 35 countries to sign at summit level an agreement, which if you can think about it, 35 countries. <laughs> and it had to be consensus. So you had to get 35 countries to agree to a certain set of principles, which they did and signed as well, you say basket three was uh, became the one with the most impact. It's the one that set country borders. No, basket one oh. was the one that set. Oh. So what did basket three do? Basket three was the so-called cooperation basket. Mm -hmm. And what it did was lay out the provisions for all the ways in which the East and West the peoples of the various countries would interact. It also contained provisions that became the way in which you measure human rights activity, how governments treat their people. And by 1977, in a number of ways, it was clear that the West, particularly the United States, very much favored the support of the dissidents, the enabling of people to emigrate freely if they wanted to. And that became the nature of the, or the sort of origin of what became first Helsinki Watch in Moscow, which was led by Sakharov and Orlov and Sharansky and Elena Bonner, and eventually in New York, Helsinki Watch, which was founded uh, by a very small, very high-level group of people in New York with funding from the Ford Foundation. So Helsinki Watch in New York, Helsinki Watch in Moscow, which was under enormous pressure from the Soviets. Uh, but that was those two, those two uh, agreements, those two organizations that started literally from scratch were the beginning of what became eventually Human Rights Watch. And a great many of the human rights organizations in uh, Russia. How relevant were concerns over what was called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction? Well, that was Mutual Assured Destruction was a term that was applied to the balance of forces on the nuclear arms. For much of the Cold War, until basically the Gorbachev era and subsequently, the two sides were in a fierce competition developing nuclear weapons. And while there was no such official doctrine as nuclear it was understood that if either side were to use a nuclear weapon, it would assure the destruction of the other. Is it, hasn't that become an issue again more recently with Putin? Well, it's an issue certainly in the sense that Putin is, you know, Putin is now using the nuclear, his nuclear forces as another form, form of harassment and intimidation of the world. Uh, whether, in fact, he intends to use nuclear weapons only he knows. But, but uh, it is significant. Yeah that throughout the Cold War, which essentially began right after World War II and ended technically in 1991 when the Soviet Union imploded and the satellites all moved on to their own independent structures. Um, nuclear weapons were managed by both sides. They were not used. Sometimes they were considered a threat they were not used. That's significant. The key to the Cold War 
was that the Soviet Union and the United States actually managed to wage a fierce competition that sometimes veered into uh, virtual, never actual combat. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, is the most famous example of that. But it didn't end in a nuclear exchange. It ended in essentially a way for both sides to claim victory. So it's it's a you know the, the history of the Cold War, which we're very much back in the middle of again. I think is that no longer do you have a communist regime, communist regime, in what is now Russia, but you have classic Russian aggression, meaning the same kind of thing that you might have had in the 18th century. You have a leader, unchallenged. There's no political process of any consequence in, in, in Russia at the moment. Vladimir Putin does what he wants to, very much like a czar, or in some respects like Stalin. Even the Russian leaders, Soviet leaders of the sort of Brezhnev era, had a Politburo. There were some influences other than the mindset of one person. Well, now you have completely, it's all about Putin and what he wants to do. There is no political problem. On the other side, which is the Western side, uh, and you have the former, many of the former Soviet uh, republics, Poland, where were members of NATO. So NATO is now the, the surrounding force of Russia, and Putin's argument is that NATO is a threat to Russia, which is why he insisted he was able to invade Ukraine, which he never really regarded as a separate country. But now Finland and uh, Norway and Sweden are all... No, uh, Finland, but the others, are, Sweden has not been, because the Turks insist that there are Kurds and... and yeah, but the, but the Turks when you start seem to be backtracking on that. So it looks like uh, it, it, that might change. Oh, I don't know. Whether it's, I mean, the fact is Finland will join NATO. Sweden eventually will join NATO. NATO is a bigger enterprise, bigger, more formidable force than it was uh, in the Cold War because countries that left the Soviet bloc joined it. And what Putin's view is that because countries that were formerly his satellites or allies now are part of NATO, he's being surrounded by what he considers to be adversaries and enemies. That's his justification for the kind of action he put in Ukraine. And the thing to remember is that as far as Putin is concerned, Ukraine really is not another country. He believes that Ukraine is really Russia. Even though it has Russians, its own language and different religion? Well, the language is very similar. Half the, the a very a significant number of people in Ukraine um, speak Russian. Mm -hmm. And it is true that, for example, Russia, for all people who actually came from Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia, through much of the Cold War, uh, actually for much of the Soviet era, along with Belarusia, were essentially one country. Mm -hmm. When the UN was founded in 1945, the Russians said, we're the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and we should therefore have 15 members of the UN. Uh, that would be like saying to the United States, we have 50 states, we have 50 Well, that was not accepted at the time, but what was agreed was 
that the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics would have three members of the UN. Russia, which was on the Security Council, Ukraine, and Belarus. So there's always been this kind of sort of sense of whether Ukraine is in fact a separate country or really is it just an extension of Russia. In fact, it, it has a, a, you know, a very significant population of people who are Russian Orthodox. At, one, at the, the other side of the country, it faces west, so it's in Poland and so on. But Ukraine, in what we've seen in the last year, has asserted without qualification that it is a separate country. Putin says it's not. It's mine, and I want it back. And that's what the conflict at the moment uh, is all about. But going back to 1975, were the signatories optimistic that it would work? I think the signatories, by their nature, they were diplomats and, and politicians. They signed the agreement without really knowing very much about how it would fit. And as I explained in the book, the narrative of the book is essentially the story of how it played out. Yeah. Well, um, what, what about the presidents, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford? Well, Richard Nixon had been uh, driven from office. It was Gerald Ford. Um, Gerald Ford and Henry Kissinger went to the conference, signed the agreements. Despite, um, this, Gerald Ford, despite Gerald Kissinger's Ford, to, to misgivings. Credit, he, he faced down the, the sort of Soviet, the uh, Wall Street Journal and others who said he shouldn't go because it was a hmm. gift to the Soviets. I don't think he really, to be honest, completely understood exactly what the meaning of it was. Remember, an agreement of that length and that density on so many subjects was not necessarily completely understood by anybody. Well, didn't but, Kissinger tell Ford that it was just a grandstand play to the left? He at one time said, I mean, certainly, as I said before, he was disparaging. Hmm. But even though he was disparaging in his own way, he became essential to the success of what was in the Accords because of his negotiations with Gromyko. He had a relationship with Gromyko in which these two guys could sit down and say, look, we're the big boys here. What do we want to sort out? And Kissinger, you know, he very, in his own kind of way, was somebody who saw every opportunity, I mean, every, every wrinkle as an opportunity, and he took it in this question of the reunification issues and others. He didn't stop the agreement. He didn't argue for Ford not to go. There was no significant opposition to the agreement in the United States. Fundamentally, most people didn't know about it, couldn't have cared less. And that's one of the reasons why it is so interesting. The kind of man bites dog provision of consequence, something that people don't really understand because it's complicated. Well, it leads eventually that is primarily one of the stories in the book, to the creation of the human rights, global human rights movement, which did not exist. The only human rights organization of consequence in 1975 was Amnesty. And what Amnesty did was write letters on behalf of political prisoners. That's what they did. It wasn't what you now have. Active, on the ground, monitoring of, of, of government activity and, and non-government activity on human rights issues. And it started with political issues, but it's gone to social issues. Every major issue, consequence in the world now, gets monitored for its human rights provisions. You, you and said, that's a huge 
change from the past. In the United States, uh, in the United States, Leonard, I believed that it was the uh, in the 60s in which we had the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, which for the first time in this country really had civic engagement in an attempt to influence power. And in the civil rights movement, and in the anti-war movement, it had tremendous influence. And it was the fact that we now had a civil rights movement, which enabled people to take that to the next level and call it human rights. Human rights is something that always was considered, well, we have a world uh, declaration of human rights, 1948, signed by Eleanor Roosevelt, but it didn't have any real, it had no practical application. After Helsinki, Helsinki Watch, Human Rights Watch, you now have an organization in Human Rights Watch of uh, almost 600 people and an annual budget of $100 million and uh, serious endowment and very careful, systematic monitoring by an NGO of human rights activity around the world. It's not an official State Department. It's not an official organization. It takes no money from the government. It takes no money from any other government. It's entirely publicly supported, and what it is, is a way of monitoring human rights activity. That was a consequence of what we originally conceived of at Helsinki. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What the world needs now is love, sweet the only thing that there's just too little of what the world needs now is love, sweet love. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Peter Osnos. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Would You Believe? The Helsinki Accords Changed the World? Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's given the number to WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And... Um, he, you might also consider becoming a BAI buddy. And uh, during Women's History Month, if you become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more or make a $100 contribution to BAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949 that have been com- culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get it, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And I return now to Peter L. W. Osnos, who is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, he began his journalism career in 1965 as an assistant to I.F. Stone, 
working on his weekly newsletter, and he's um, worked for the Washington Post uh, and uh, also as a vice president, associate publisher, and senior editor at Random House, uh, and was publisher of Random House's Times Books division. Uh, in 1997, he founded Public Affairs, served as its publisher and CEO uh, until 2005. And in 2020, he and his wife, Susan Shera Osnos, launched Platform Books, LLC. And they've published and are edited Jimmy Carter, Rosalind Carter, Wesley Clark, Clark Clifford, Bill Clinton. Uh, and uh, they published the book that we are discussing, Would You Believe the Helsinki Accords Changed the World, Advancing Global Human Rights, and for Decades, Security in Europe. We talked about, you mentioned that the American public was largely unaware of what this was really all about. What about the people in the other countries involved? Um, well, the most important thing that happened uh, was uh, that in uh, September and one of the provisions of the accord said that every country had to publish a full document in an official place. And of course, that, that in the Soviet bloc, that meant places that anybody in Russia who had the patience could read the full terms of the accord. But even then, they didn't fully appreciate it. What happened was the delegation of members of Congress went to Moscow in uh, September of 1975, one of whose members was a fabulous character named Mr. Millicent Fenwick, a Republican congresswoman from New Jersey. Great character. She's the one who told the dissidents that she met with in Moscow, read the damn thing. Hmm. It says that you have the right to create a human rights monitoring organization, that it's part of the provisions. And they did. They created Helsinki Watch. And that was a direct consequence of what was the provisions in the accord. And there were other Helsinki-related organizations in places like Poland, Czech Republic, and so on. There began to be this incipient kind of human rights um, monitoring enterprises in a small way in the Soviet bloc. We call it over the next few years, things began to shake up a bit. Seventy-nine, you had uh, you had uh, the uh, solidarity movement in Poland, the labor movement, not a human rights movement. But what you had now was the beginning of civic engagement on human rights issues in the East Bloc, and that was a major a breakthrough. In the United States, as I said, you'd had very major, very important civil rights organizations. But the idea of a human rights organization hadn't really taken hold until Helsinki watched and became human rights. But wasn't it all rather shaky? Could it be said that the accords ended in effect just four years after they signed when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan? No, because that wasn't Europe. Okay, wasn't it? Ended but it did lead to it did lead to all sorts of tensions. The U.S. decided to boycott the Moscow well, right. Olympics that, in oh, 1980, and then the Soviets boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what you. I mean, I again, all well, of this I'm, is I'm very about, much part of my my the, the my effort to explain the history. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. On December 28th or whatever it was, 29th, 1979. Yes, it was December 24th. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. They invaded another country in the world, not in Europe. It was a different issue. And that was, by any measure, the end of the detente period of the 70s. And yes, led to abrogations of other kinds of agreements and arms control and the Olympics and so on. Also in 1979, in the June of 79, Pope John Paul went to Poland and the whole country turned out to him. Subsequently, you had solidarity, which you began to see in the East Bloc for a variety of reasons, which I mean, there was no one who believed in 1975 that 15, 16 years later, there would be no Soviet Union. But the process of history and the way in which events evolved led to, in the end, the implosion of the Soviet Empire. It just did. Well, the Soviet Parliament voted in December 1991 to end what was left of the Soviet Union. What does that mean? Well, in so um, after 15 years after the signing, the Soviet Union imploded. And, That's my point. Yeah, and its Eastern European satellites broke with communism in most cases. Right. That's that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. No one in 75 could have predicted that in 91 there would be no Soviet Union. Nobody in 75 knew that there would be a solidarity, that there would be a Polish pope, that there would be Gorbachev, that there would be in the United States all the developments of our own country in those years. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And the whole point, what I, <laughs> I guess I'm arguing if that's what it is, is that the Helsinki Accords provided a framework on security and human rights issues that really were the framework into which European history um, evolved. It is now over on the security side because Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine. That brings us back to the 20th century, in which countries invaded each other in Europe. And it brings us back to the 19th and 18th centuries, in which countries invaded Europe. But from 1975 until the invasion of Ukraine, the first Donbass, and then the country, the European continent was secure, with the exception, significantly, of the Balkans. But that was an entirely internal Yugoslav. Never went beyond the borders. Not a European war. It was a war among the Yugoslav republics. Tragic, no question about it. But it was not a consequence of one country invading another. country falling apart. Now... Your book's full title is very long. Would you, would you believe the Helsinki Accords changed the world, advancing global human right and, and, uh, uh, rights and for decades security in Europe, which suggests, uh, and I think that's what you've been suggesting, that in some ways the Helsinki Accords have actually been a success? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, none. And with, listen, Leonard, I'm a publisher. I know from long titles. The title is, Would You Believe the Helsinki Accords Changed the World? 
the explanatory sentence under it. It's not the title. So, um, to be fair to the title and subtitle, the book is a is an effort to show how an agreement that was not regarded as central to global issues of security and human rights actually turned out to be. And when in a society like ours, and particularly in recent years, the assumptions are almost always things are only going to get worse. You know, polarization, division, uh, all the ways in which social fabric is strained, all true. What we had there, and what was remarkable about it, was that diplomacy created a framework which provided a way for Europeans who live in relative, by the standards of Europe, security, and the world to recognize the value of human rights monitor. Those are the two things. That and we, that's, in my view, a good story. It's not the only story, but it's a good story. And one of the reasons I was able to write it is I knew absolutely everybody involved. I was a Moscow correspondent, knew every one of the districts. I knew everybody involved with the establishment of Helsinki Watch in New York. As I said, my father-in-law, by coincidence, was the uh, American negotiator. My wife was the first press director of, of Helsinki Watch. I was on the board for full terms. You know the story. I know the people. And I'm trying in a sense, in, in narrative form, and it's not a scholarly work, it's a narrative, uh, show you how something that you didn't know happened, happened. And as we mentioned earlier, the book includes a chapter by Holly Kartner about her experiences with Helsinki Watch in the early 1990s. That was in Romania? Yeah, she's a lawyer. And uh, she had been a, a uh, she graduated from Columbia Law School. She's from North Carolina. And she was working in a law firm. And then she was um, gone to, went to Romania on a mission. And in time, it became clear to her and to the people then responsible for what was called that she was a very good investigator. And again, the key to uh, the quality of work done by the Human Rights Watch people is that they are, their work, their, 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 their investigations are extraordinarily precise and of sufficient credibility and depth to justify the kind of advocacy so what you have is an organization which does all the investigation, produces all the reports that have to be top-notch. And on the basis of the investigations, on the basis of what they have found, they can do advocacy. You have an organization which merely advocates, basically because they believe certain principles. They don't have the same credibility as an organization that is making that advocacy on the after having done the investigation. That's a great contribution. And Polly was one of the pioneers of human rights. How relevant has the development of the digital networks in the intervening years been? Well, one of the things we, you know, I think anyone of us would agree that over centuries, you have information. 
and the information is gathered and the information is shared. What changes and has changed and is continuing to change is the way the information is distributed. Not always accurate information. Sorry? Not always accurate information. Well, that's always going to be the case. Mm -hmm. Information that is available is not necessarily pre-programmed or edited. But I'll tell you one very specific uh, example. 1975, before the summit, irrelevant to the summit, I was in East Germany covering a conference in East Berlin of European Communist Party. Time, there was a lot of interest in the Italian Communist Party, the Spanish Communist Party, the East Communist Party. <laughs> the question was, is Euro-communism on the rise? There was a conference and we were there. I covered the conference. While there, I also discovered that everybody in East Berlin on their televisions were able to watch West German television. Hmm. Meaning, if you lived in Berlin, you could watch West German and what I came to conclude was that was much, much more significant than a Euro-communist meeting. Euro-communism in a sense, I know where the consequence. But the fact that in East Germany you could watch West German television really was enormously influential. People in East Germany were looking at what was going on in West Germany in a way that ultimately show them the difference between the two. My view about these things is that information, the way information is transmitted, the spread is central to how events evolve. And what we're living in now, of course, is an era in which information is just vastly more available than it ever was because of the internet. We have just about a minute left. Anything you want to add before you go? Read the book. <laughs> Leonard, I'm an author. Authors want you to read the thing they wrote. Well, you also, you also are, um, have been a commentator and host on National Public Radio, so um, you're not just a writer. I'm, I'm uh, Leonard, hmm. and you've been around a long time, so have I. We've uh, pretty I much tried it all, and uh, I'm still trying. And so well, the book we've been discussing... Would you believe the Helsinki Accords changed the world? Uh, I've been speaking with uh, its author, Peter L. W. Osnos, uh, but Holly Kartner, the former executive director of Helsinki Watch, was also a contributor to the book, which is published by Platform. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks, Leonard. It was a pleasure. And uh, that uh, brings us to the end of our show. If you're discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And you can find our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you want to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Well, I, I hate this, but I have to ask you to support WBAI monetarily. We are really going through a rough time right now. In fact, uh, there are plans for taking a whole week to just do fundraising in the near future because, um, well, 
we have really been hit hard by the pandemic and, and some other things. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by giving us a call at 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number two WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 a month or more in the name of Leonard Lopin at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing. Would you believe the Helsinki Accords changed the world? Uh, is by Peter L. W. Osnos, who's been our guest. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. On the other hand, you can also become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month or more, which allows us to plan for the future, and we'll be happy to send you a BAI tote bag if you become a member for $10 a month or more. Uh, We also have another little offer that will run out at the end of this month because this is Women's History Month. But if you become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more or make a $100 contribution to BAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio. And uh, uh, that's 1949, called from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister station in the Pacifica Network. Ask uh, for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org become a BAI buddy with low paid at large as your favorite show and I hope you'll do it now Um, BAI is the only station on the New York dial that's 100% listener sponsored help keep us alive and thriving with your tax deductible support again the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to wbai.org And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when our guest will be Justin Brooks discussing his new book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent.